Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebod, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors, they are the backdrop of our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how can we work together to design a better world. Today, I'm delighted to introduce my next guest, George Hernandez. With nearly 40 years of experience as a professor of architecture at the University of Miami and a respected architect and preservationist, George is going to discuss the integral role of architectural preservation in the shaping and revitalization of urban environments. He's also going to share his insights on the profession and ways to balance development with the need to respect the cultural and historical significance of our built heritage, a leading challenge faced by preservationists today when navigating the delicate balance between progress and heritage. George, thank you for joining On Cities. It is always a pleasure to speak with you. Good morning, Carrie. Thank you. George, I learned that you spent your early childhood years in Havana in a building that was constructed by your grandfather and his brothers, immediately adjacent to a zoo where you could hear the roar of lions. How did this experience shape your thinking of cities and landscapes? Formatively, I must say, um, because I've been in love with Africa and lions since I was two. And when I tell that to people, they think I'm you know, engaging in Cuban hyperbole. (laughs) Um, But yes, it's true. My grandfather and his brothers um, had inherited a small dairy farm from my great-grandfather, and they grew the footprint of that. It became an utter-to-table endeavor, including pasteurization and milking machines and trucks, refrigerated trucks, and all of that. So they decided the extended family would live together vertically, vertically in a Bauhaus-style mid-century apartment building, and the only place they found enough land they could afford was by the zoo. Um, On weekends, though, um, they would take us to the farm, and there was the house and the nearby barns all loosely arranged around a farm court, Um, and the farm was in Mariel, so there would be the farm court, the fields of grazing cattle, the sea oats, the sand, and the sea, and at times Hemingway fishing in a boat. Um, Mariel is, of course, where the Mariel boat lift was lifted from. But in a sense, I always lived in a place, whether in the city of Havana, which was the home, where we, where I was near a green bioasis, a nearby oasis of green, but still in an urban area where I could see the silhouette of the great city, or in the countryside. There was always this issue of buildings and settings or groupings of buildings and their settings. And hearing you describe the story, I think I better understand when you speak about 
preservation or preservation planning, when you're always speaking about not just the individual building, but the building within the collection of buildings that also include landscapes. So it's interesting to hear um, you remember that early childhood memory. So George, you 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 left um, <clears throat> Cuba at the young age of five, came to the United States, and eventually you would study architecture at the University of Miami, and then you went on to get a master's of architecture degree from the University of Virginia. And it's been my experience that anyone that achieves success in their field does so with the guidance of mentors. And in your case, I feel that historians have played a critical role in both your education and in your life as a practitioner. Is this the case? It really is. Um, Of course, I had mentors in the field of design. For example, Rodolfo Machado and Jorge Silvetti, who were mentors of yours, were here at the time in Miami teaching for a semester in a visiting critic program. And others like Jacqueline Robertson, who was the dean of Virginia and my employer eventually, and my friend, was a formidable person. But the historians captivated me because I, at the time, I was very interested in making that link between form and meaning. And they seemed to have more answers. Um, So, of course, there was Westfall, who was at Virginia at the time, um, then went to Notre Dame and now continues to write, although he's not an active active, uh, faculty member. Um, And he was very interested in lodging the representation of institutional values in built form. That seemed to be what he was most interested in. Dora Wiebenson, a very interesting figure, was very interested in French architectural theory and architectural theory in general, which is a field I love, in particularly the part of the treatises, the historic treatises. And lastly, and maybe most importantly, of course, our friend Vincent Scully, who I I never went to Yale, so I never had a chance to, to be a student of his. But as you know, he came to the University of Miami in 1992, and from then till the time he retired, which was two decades, Um, he taught one semester in New Haven, Connecticut, at Yale, and the other semester in Miami. And I worked closely with him, and that time for me was invaluable in terms of my intellectual development um, and my friendship with him. And one of the things that came out of that friendship and that um, relationship, collegial relationship, was the book Between Two Towers, which I worked on with Catherine Lynn, his his wife, uh, Teofilo Victoria, our colleague, uh, and him and Vince, uh, which is about the pedagogy of our school. Yeah, I think that um, <clears throat> that for those listeners that might not be familiar with who you're mentioning, this is Vincent Scully, who is probably one of the most important architectural historians of the latter part of the 20th century, the beginning of the 21st century. So um, I think I think these are certainly formidable figures and interesting to hear the way in which they helped you shape your ideas. And, and I might add that Vince's gift, which he had honed by the end of his career and the last great work, Architectural, the Natural, and the Man-Made, are about, are about linking the relationships between buildings, settings, and nature. That's the lens through which he saw art history, which is formidable because it's atypical. Interesting. 
I mean, I wonder if as a result of your studies at the University of Virginia, but also in conversations with you and your own personal interests, you seem to have had, or you seem to have a lifelong admiration for the architecture of the American South. And you've taught generations of students about the importance of this built heritage. But George, what would you say to those um, today that state that we should not be teaching about the history of architecture of the American South because it represents an architecture of oppression and slavery? It's a good question and an important one to talk about. Um, so I know I only know three ways to position oneself to history, to position myself to history. One is to dismiss it. That's not an option for me. The second one is to uphold it. In other words, to imitate its virtues. And the third one, which is probably the most difficult and in some ways the most important one, is to contradict it and to learn from its failings. I think the case of the American South today has to be seen as an example of that third relationship between a person and history. Um, I, I think the South is where probably one, I think there's two formidable themes in this country. One is the genius of the documents that forged our war of independence against England and how those documents embody all of the knowledge of the Enlightenment through a particular lens, which is an American lens, a North American lens, right? That's one. And volumes have been written about that. And the second one is the crippling, horrible institution of slavery and how we have been slowly exiting its effects. And I say slowly because slavery has enslaved us for a very long time. Um, it obviously existed through a long colonial phase, and then from independence to the Civil War, and then Reconstruction, and then civil rights. And, and we're not done with the process of purging ourselves of its ills and availing ourselves of its lessons. And that's, that's why we need to keep talking and learning and teaching about the American South. Um, that problem has not been solved yet. Um, it's almost like skipping the most difficult problem on a math test. We need to answer that problem. There are people that are doing it, have been doing it, um, like Del Upton, for, for, for an example, who is um, a mentor, like I mentioned others before, um, have been, but I never, I've never met him, and I've always learned remotely from him, from reading his works. Um, in the, at the time I was in Virginia, he had not, he was in California and he had not arrived to Virginia yet, but I was reading a number of essays that he did, which fascinated me. And they were about how a lot of the plantations were built with essentially what is an African intelligence of construction. So all of the wood joinery or not, maybe not all, but most of the wood joinery from furniture to house, um, actually is traced back to African wood joinery. And Dell was doing that with a number of other people, which meant that the, the symbolism of the, the symbolism of the house was a veneer, right? A prop in a way. 
but the bones of it, you know, the constructability of it were African. Mm. Um, so that, I think that's what I mean by going deeper, not reading that first layer of the surface. Um, and so in the end, uh, I can only use another example to illustrate why we can't abandon that cause, which is the way the Jewish people have dealt with the Holocaust. I mean, I was in a camp when I was 15, not because my parents were wealthy. My parents were factory workers because I was an immigrant at age five. But I was in a school that had a scholarship program that afforded me that opportunity. And I visited a death camp when I was 15 that had an indelible effect on my mind, my psyche, and my development. Um, And I think until we get to the point where we can understand all of the ramifications of the institution of slavery, we have to keep doing research and working on it. Yeah, I mean, what I hear also in your answer, and again, as an educator uh, of generations of students at the University of Miami, I think maybe what you're also arguing for is that that in this world um, that we live, perhaps the attitude is about augmenting your understanding of architectural history um, versus censoring information that might not allow us to understand that history in its messy and beautiful complexity. So I think, I think it's an important message, um, you know, and, and I think more educators need to be speaking about this um, and we need to be able to find a way to, you know, uh, do do this with a level of respect um, that is necessary to be able to advance any cause. Um, so, George, maybe turning to your own. Uh, By the life. way, thank you for that question. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for for um, for answering it, uh, and I think also a, per- a personal way. Um, George, maybe returning to your own biography, you returned to Miami in the early 1980s to launch a, a successful architectural practice but also to join the University of Miami School of Architecture. Um, What compelled you to return? Well, it was tough because Charlottesville was a beautiful place to live in, Um, bucolic and small, yet sophisticated by the presence of that university. And my wife is from the South, even though she's Cuban-born, she grew up in in the South. so it was tough to return, but uh, we had family and we had cultural roots. And uh, professionally, more important, professionally, the University of Miami School of Architecture at the time was nascent, relatively nascent period, but there was an opportunity to come and build a school. In other words, it was an opportunity to build a practice because Miami is a growing city still. Um, But there was also an opportunity to build a school because we're the the school furthest south, let's say. We were at the time. Um, And there was a collection of people here, um, Andres and Liz, Andres uh, Duani and Elizabeth Platter-Zyberg, who had started that venture. But then there were a number of younger faculty here that were very aware of the possibility of positing a school of architecture in the United States, whose pedagogy would also expand and be focused in the Caribbean um, and therefore be more diverse uh, intellectually, but also culturally and ethnically. Um, So that notion of the ability to merge practice and theory, which was prevalent in the 80s, when I came in the late 80s, 1987, prevalent in the 80s, um, 
was possible, was at hand's reach, and also to found a school that would find sympathy with that. It was an exciting time. Mm -hmm. And um, the book, uh, Between Two Towers, the drawings of the School of Miami by Vincent Scully, um, I think is the best work that forms a kind of unified position on that period of time. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, I was a student during that period and benefited from, um, I think the dynamism of the, um, faculty that was here at the time and a kind of collective spirit. And a, I would also argue an open-mindedness towards the study of, um, history, the city, um, and architecture. So we were at the fringe, right? If you look at whatever New York or DC or Chicago as the center, but we were the epicenter. If you look at the Caribbean. Indeed, as we still are. <laughs> as we still are. Um, and maybe uh, maybe to that, I mean, you continue to teach at the university um, and have always led a life that is equally um, between education and practice. And so perhaps as an educator, um, George, could you describe for our listeners perhaps what you believe to be the prevalent schools of thought regarding preservation and the city? Yes. Um, well, pre preservation, well, I should say that I kind of didn't start out as a preservation architect. I don't have formal training in preservation. Um, but, you know, preservation is a relatively young field. The most important piece of legislation that establishes modern practices today was the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966, although there have been acts uh, of Congress and then of also the executive branch for this country anyway, that go back to the early 1800s, mainly having to do with lands because preservation is like the national park system lodged in the Department of the Secretary of the Interiors. So preservation is relatively new, although we've done it for as long as buildings have existed. We've had to maintain and steward and care for buildings. But as a discipline, you know, as a field of thought, it's relatively new. Right. Even the Europe, the great European preservation founders, Viollet le Duc or John Ruskin, they're 19th century figures. Right. But so there has been a changing attitude about how to respond to the material of history, or I should say materia, right, of history, the matter of history, which is the residue that we work with. Um, and that has changed over time. But one dramatic shift happened between the Athens Charter and the Venice Charter. So the Athens and Venice Charters were letters that were authored by UNESCO, the United Nations. And coincidentally, they happened briefly after the two great wars of the first half of the 20th century. Because as you can imagine, given the devastation and the bombing, um, the world was changed radically by the technology of warfare and those two wars so close together in time. And so after the dead were buried and the sick were healed and the basic necessities of life were regained and so on, people started worrying about cultural stewardship, right, of the architecture of these great cities of Europe. And that's why we see UNESCO authoring those letters. In the first letter, the letter of Athens, there is the idea of um, anastilosis, which, put simply, is what happens when you take, either when you were taken, if you are young, or you take a young person, be it a nephew or a niece or a son or a granddaughter, 
to a natural history museum and you look at one of those great dinosaur skeletons, right? The T-Rex, for example. And so there's the T-Rex in all its glory, made safe by a velvet rope and a platform. And um, obviously the entire skeleton could not be found in the dig, in the archaeological dig. So they would insert a vertebrate or two or a femur or what have you to uh, allow you to erect the great lizard. And those inserts had to be distinguished and distinctive from the bones. So usually they're black or some other color, right? And so that notion of assembling something with pieces that have to be distinct is what is referred to by anastilosis and temples from antiquity are reconstructed in the same way. So what happened between the Athens Charter, which is after World War I, and the Venice Charter, which is after World War II, is that concept of distinctiveness from the material of history was exploded, and it no longer lived in the realm of the detail, <clears throat> but it lived in the realm of the overall body of the building or even the district, if it was an assembly of buildings. This The, the, the Venice Charter happened in the mid-century, not too long before the 1966 National Preservation Act. So that was coincident with the contemporary thinking of modernism and contextuality, or a contextuality, that Vincent Scully talks so clearly about in his works, right? And so what happened is we started to believe that we could only add in a modern idiom next to an old building. That so, has changed. So what you're saying, George, um, again, for our listeners who might not be familiar with these topics is that um, what these uh, letters proposed was that the additions to historic buildings had to be distinctly different than uh, the the original, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Um, but we know, also know of other examples um, in history, like yes. for instance, Williamsburg, mm -hmm. which might be under perhaps reconstruction, so it's a slightly different, or I'm thinking about, you know, perhaps projects for the Stoa Vatalos in mm -hmm. Greece, where um, there's maybe a different sensibility that takes hold. Yeah, actually, the Stoa Vatlos is also a reconstruction, and we owe both of those to John D. Rockefeller Sr. He paid for both of them, the Stoa Vatlos and Williamsburg. Um, but, so we've, we've had um, the generosity of his philanthropy for a long time with us. But, um, yeah, and that distinction, like I was trying to express, in the mid-century, there was a kind of knee-jerk reaction that the distinction is traditional versus modern. Now, there is a beginning of an opening up of that reading, I think, and it's a more nuanced distinction. In other words, you, there are ways to make a viewer understand, that's the point of preserva preservation, to make the physical, the formal, and the textual right, the interpretation, marry one another so that we can see physical history, right, at least architectural history, and imagine the setting in which these events unfold, whether it be the civil war or a domestic event, right, or the killing of Lincoln in a theater, right, that's what it's about, it's bringing this to life, making us a part of that setting. So what happens is it's more nuanced, so, for example, you can use architectural composition to make that nuanced difference. If there's a difference in the 
window-to-wall relationship of the historic building than of that addition, or there's a gap of space, or there's a chromatic difference, there's a color difference, or even more sophisticated, there's a stylistic difference, um, then that's the point. The point is for us somehow, and in some cases subconsciously, to understand what was old and what is new because of the inextricable interrelationship of old and new. Um, Many times preservationists are painted as nostalgic or people that build a black line between the past and the future. But in fact, I think preservationists are change managers. We have to manage all of the resources of the built environment and continue to help them grow. Um, because of things like global population increase, which is inevitable, because of the thing of uh, the reduction of of natural lands, right, of natural resources. So it's an interesting field now, uh, perhaps more than it was 30 years ago or 40 years ago, because it's got a number of branches out into the world of ecology and sustainability out in into the world of actually economy and and through sustainability also this notion of energy and footprint in other words a building that has been in use for a hundred or if we were in europe 500 years has been a much more efficient user of the raw material that it is constructed from than a new building no matter how efficient that new building is so i'm not saying not to build i'm an architect also I'm saying we don't have to take a fruit out of the basket. We can just put a fruit, another fruit into the basket. Yeah. You see? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're absolutely right. I think that today um, preservation isn't only about, um, you know, architectural language, right? Um, and, And wanting somehow to have the discussion about whether the new needs to look different than the old. I think now preservation seems to me to have taken a more central role in the discussion because it is ultimately about sustainability as you as you mentioned and so i think that um it's not something re- that should be relegated in my opinion as a specialty and in fact it should be part of the zeitgeist of of education essentially certainly within schools of architecture um but also beyond because mm-hmm. one of the most sustainable acts that we can do is actually to preserve a building that already exists and far often it's just becomes easier to just tear it down. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think what I listen, when I listen to you, I think it it reminds us of how important, not just from certainly maybe even an economic standpoint, but certainly from an environmental standpoint, how we should be more sensitive to these, these constructions and and do our best to, to be in dialogue with them. Um, So that Vincent's, the Vincent Scully prize, which was set up at the national building museum was once given to Richard Moe, who was another great mentor of I, when he named me to the Board of Trustees of the National Trust, and it was inspiring to work under him. He's an extraordinary um, man. Um, So everybody called him Dick. That was his nickname. So Dick Moe, when he was given the Vincent Scully Prize and the prizes received in the National Building Museum, Part of his laureate speech was to coin the term sustainable stewardship, and it had to do with exactly what you just expressed. And what he did is he deconstructed that beautiful, monumental building, which is the National Building Museum, 
And he actually said how many train cars of bricks, how many felled timbers, board feet of felled timber, how much concrete, how much stone. Then he gave the carbon footprint of that because the building was in danger of being demolished. Mm. Um, and it was a group of people that said, no, we save it and put the national building there. The building, interestingly enough, since we were talking about the American South, the building was built after the Civil War to manage, help, and aid the veterans of that war. Now, the Union won. So the paychecks had the names of Southern Confederate vets and Northern vets. Now that we were one country again, we had to take care of all. Mm. Well, we're going to take a quick break. But when we return, George is going to continue to discuss the important role of preservation in the building of cities um, by sharing with us um, some fascinating um, projects of stewardship that he's been involved in, both in Miami and the Caribbean, and also elaborating on his own successful architectural practice and the projects that he's working on today. So don't miss it. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with George Hernandez on uh, the role of preservation and the construction of cities. And um, George, before the break, we were talking broadly about um, different schools of thought and the way in which preservation and the building of cities has been considered perhaps following World War II. Um, 
But I'd like to turn now to speak a little bit about your role, um, perhaps within Miami in the state of Florida, because you rose as a leader within Miami's architectural and preservation community, serving as the chair of the state of Florida Historical Preservation Advisory Council, the vice chair of the Florida Historical Commission, and as a trustee of the Florida Trust. And this life of service highlights your commitment to preserving Florida's cultural heritage and has earned you or eventually earned you an appointment to the Board of America's most important preservation organization, which is the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Um, Can you share with our listeners what the role of this organization is? Yeah, I would love to do that because I love the trust. Um, Beforehand, I just want to continue something that happened just before the break, which you very beautifully underscored, which is preservation is is an expertise, but I think it will be increasingly ubiquitous in the practice of architecture. It's been highly popular. It is a popular movement. Um, And today, more than ever, I mean, there's always been this notion of the young moving into that affordable part of town which is urban and gritty and exciting we've that's happened in my life i'm older than you and it's happened in your life and it'll continue to happen so it's a kind of james jacobs inclination james jacobs wrote about the american city and and in a populist way right um and so population is the preservation i'm sorry is a populist movement and i think as architects in a professional realm we're starting to understand the the inconsistency of thinking about design and preservation separately, right? So you're right. I think all offices, all architectural offices will have, there won't be an expertise of I'm a historic preservation architect. It'll permeate practice. They'll always be the great restorers, right? When you think of Notre Dame now being restored, it's extraordinary, right? Because of the fire. So there'll always be that expertise of conservators, restorers, but but architects, I think we have to have that as part of our regular toolkit, only because green sites are rarer and rarer. So we will come to a site and there will inevitably be some footprint of the built environment in it, and we have to understand how to manage it, right? So I, I mean, I'm hopeful about that. Mm. So the National Trust does that. The National Trust is a nonprofit organization. It is the one, you know, it's the leading nonprofit organization in the country. I said earlier that popul- that preservation is a populist movement. It has been from the beginning. Uh, Pamela Sue uh, and uh, Cunningham uh, had tea parties to be able to raise money to be able to buy and restore Mount Vernon, the first president's home. So there's always been powerful women in the movement from very early on. Uh, it's always had a populist dimension, although it has its legal and let's say governmental counterpart. And I think because of that, the role of the trust is very important. The trust has always had an extraordinary legal department that joins sometimes as an amicus in an, and files an amicus brief against, you know, acts of demolition that would be devastating for the culture of this country, you know, the material culture of this country. But they have a lot of young people, and Dick Moe did a lot of this, reaching out. uh, They help. They have a great network from federal to statewide to local. So they put in place the practice of preservation as defined in that 1966 National Historic Preservation 
uh, a law. Okay, so it's interesting. So it was an important place to be. They're thought leaders, um, and they're and they can be um, activists, right? And then there there's also a, a kind of embodied wisdom at the trust that people that have legal quandaries access, but. Um, they did come from the Department of the Interiors. They branched out of the Department of Interiors, and under Richard Moe's tenure, they they rid themselves of federal funding, um, and they own properties. They own, you know, they own the Farnsworth House, a kind of monument, iconic monument of modernism. They own Lyndhurst, the most famous and grand Gothic revival house in the country, and they steward them so their stewardship becomes model behavior. So it's based on the British National Trust. But I think it's gone beyond them, and they work greatly in diversity, um, issues of diversity. Hmm. Um, so I was a, at the trust. I was the vice president of the diversity committee. I had the great pleasure of working with figures older than me who were, you know, there at the beginning of the civil rights movement, and it was just heady. It was very heady to be in the room with them and talk about these issues and and beautiful work and and my work in preservation. Is 50-50, I would say 60-40. A lot of it is service and advocacy. Maybe 40% is my practice. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that your exposure to the national stage of the trust, I think also, um, it's my understanding, brought you to connect with the World Monuments Fund Mm -hmm. um, to try to bring attention to two projects, I would say, in particular. Um, One is the Miami Marine Stadium here in Miami. And the second is an extraordinary collection of historic wooden churches uh, in Santiago de Cuba. And I was wondering, because much of your own practice um, takes place in Miami um, and throughout the Caribbean, one could argue, and you have focused on preserving this cultural legacy of both Miami and the Caribbean. Could you share with us a little bit about, perhaps starting with the Miami Marine Stadium, a little bit about this project? Yes, I would love to do that. So both of the, both of the examples you gave actually talk to an issue that's very dear to me, and that is the notion of hemispheric stewardship. And I'm talking, obviously, of the hemisphere of the Americas. Um, and it's important because anybody that knows a bit of history know that the boundaries, political boundaries between nations change, right? But cultural resources um, don't. Nevertheless, they fall within the system of law that might be um, the resident system of law at any one given place. So both of those, both of those examples have to do with you know, this responsibility that we have as hemispheric stewards of the built environment. The Miami Marine Stadium is a modern structure on Biscayne Bay um, in a a spit of land called Virginia Key between mainland Miami and Key Biscayne, um, which is an island that was connected as recently as the early 50s. So it was an island until the early 50s. And the stadium was designed by an exceptional man who recently passed about a year and a little bit ago, Hilario Candela, who was born in Cuba and uh, um, has an interesting life history. You and I know him well. We don't have time to go into it, unfortunately. But um, he was educated in the United States, went back to Cuba, and then when the revolution, Castro's revolution started, came back to the States 
and found a job in a prominent but relatively small, by today's standards, architectural practice. And they gave him this job. And the job was to build a grandstand for a speedboat racing course that was going to be sculpted out of the sea. It was sculpted out of a mangrove forest, actually. But this happened in 1962 before there was a IPA or NEPA. There was no environmental protection. Um, so the, the, the sculpted body of water appears like a kind of circus maximus. It has that, that geometry of a long rectangle with two curved ends, obviously because of the way the boats run. And then the stadium is the size of a what we call a soccer field and the rest of the world, if anybody's listening from outside the U.S., would call a football field, which is slightly bigger than an American football field. So about 125 feet by, uh, I'm sorry, 325 feet by like 120 feet. And it's all made out of poured concrete, and it has a 65-foot cantilever, and the roof, which is the signature element, um, is configured of uh, hyperbolic paraboloids, which is a complex geometric form that is very efficient. So it's a huge parasol or a piece of concrete origami looking, actually it trespasses into the waters. What's That's what's interesting about it architecturally. What's interesting about it culturally is that all sorts was used for racing, but then in the off season, all sorts of things happen there. So the on a barge, so rock concerts started to happen there and the famous there was a famous Jimmy Buffett concert that happened there on a barge and the first black miss america pageant happened there and you know all sorts of cultural things happened there that, that talk about Miami the young city like a mid-century Miami because Miami's a little more than a 100 years old so there was a move to demolish the marine stadium and Hilario was in his 70s at the time, and he had he had unbelievable energy. So in his 70s, he acted like someone in their early 50s, I guess. Um, and I called him because I worked for him for a brief moment in my early career. And I said, hey, they're, they're tearing down the stadium. We have to do something about it. And we founded a nonprofit advocacy group called Friends of Marine Stadium. And John Worth joined the group as well. And I had just been appointed to the trust so that building, first of all, is so imageable. And you can look it up online, just say Miami Marine Stadium, and it still has a huge platform online. But the building ticked so many boxes of what the trust was trying to do. They were trying to open preservationists to the notion of what they call monuments of the recent past. In other words, modern architectural modern architecture can be historic, right? And diversity communities, because Hilario was a Cuban-American. And um, then for 20 years, the monument had been shuttered, even though it has like a prime location on the Miami waterfront on this verdant island. It had been shuttered. So street artists um, from all of Miami thought of it as the most important canvas to use. Now, this this was not a legal, (laughs) this was not a legal activity, but it certainly was artful and powerful and current. So it became this 300 foot large canvas about, you know, graffiti statements. Um, And so a number of people that worked with her, Rosa worked with us, Rosa Lowinger, the famous conservator, um, did a lot of work on the graffiti, and the trust named it as the first 11 most endangered properties in America. And so we 
we nominated it to the World Monument Fund. And, and here's where the education part of it all starts, because um, advocacy requires this link to education and to universities. So HABS, which started document, HABS' Historic American Building Survey, which started during the Depression when architects had no work, the program that the WPA and, and Roosevelt administration put these out-of-work architects to draw and record the historic buildings and landscapes of the United States. 50 cents on the dollar, one could argue, but during the Depression, 50 cents was 50 cents, right? So today, HABS is monitored by universities. So this the role of students and an educator and notion of applied science is critical in all of this. And for eight years, we worked actively to save the stadium. The city saw the nonsense of demolishing it. They have taken it back because they allowed us to operate during the recession so that if we found the rightful link for development, we could restore it. But they took it back. But sadly, the monument sits there, mm. right? Beautifully reflected in this bay of water that is the size of the Washington Mall. The race course is the size of the Washington Mall. And the National Trust putting it on its list and the World Monument Fund putting it on its list was instrumental. Then we got money from the Getty and on and on it went. It was wonderful. Now, because of that, and then because of some work I did in Cuba on the Hemingway House with the trust, I uh, I was approached by uh, the Archbishop of Santiago, which you mentioned earlier. Actually, before you get into the story of uh, the churches, um, I just want to thank you because it's really, it, it's can often, advocacy can sometimes be a very thankless job. <laughs> um, and I, for one, um, for those who are in the audience that are listening that might have any role in trying to advance this project, I would I would implore them to do so. It's uh, an extraordinary swath of land that connects us to our geography in Miami. Um, at least for many of us who grew up here, um, it plays a pivotal role in our memories of the city. It's an extraordinary structure. And I think if we are to continue to want to aspire to be a world-class city, we need to preserve our history, um, uh, those critical buildings that connect us to our past and also our landscapes um, so that we can augment the public realm. So um, I do want to give you enough time to uh, share the fascinating story of the wooden churches in Santiago before we actually talk a bit about your practice which we could probably spend an entire episode on as well. So tell us about those extraordinary yes. churches. And, and by the way, thank you, because again, you know, Hilario's work at the Marine stage, he was 27 years old when he designed it. This is a globally important monument. And it's linked to a, sea, a, a branch, a stream of South American modernism, <clears throat> South American Caribbean modernism. So that's the example of how we can probably have the only monument on, Amer on the American shore that is linked to a modern strand of architecture that is, you know, the Caribbean and even Brasilia. And so there's an example of hemispheric stewardship. It's our duty to do that. So um, the churches of Santiago were super, um, super interesting because the Hurricane Sandy sat on over Santiago for 12 hours like it did over in New Jersey. The Archbishop reached out for me because of the work I had done at the Hemingway House and with the Marine Stadium. And I said, look, we can't access the National Trust, but we can access the, the World Monument Fund. We did an application and they chose it for their um, 
uh, watch list, which is like a kind of um, it's a it's a kind of label that grants it a, the status of global patrimony. Um, and as a result of that, uh, unlike the Marine Stadium, as a result of that, when it became visible globally, they started receiving monies and they were able to restore the cathedral and the sanctuary of the Caridad del Cobre, that you're named after that <laughs> virgin, <laughs> Carrie, and also uh, some other churches. But anyway, so the interesting thing about these churches, unbeknownst to me, and the world didn't know them, the World Monument Fund was delighted to get the nomination, um, is that there were, so Santiago de Cuba was founded in 1515, that's at the height of the high renaissance, and the churches, because Santiago is affected by both hurricanes and earthquakes, have a very interesting constructive scheme. They're actually wooden buildings, and these are monumental structures. They're wooden buildings, and they're built out of wood, like a New York skyscraper is built out of a steel skeleton. These monumental churches, 60, 70, 80 feet tall, the cathedral, are built out of wood skeletons. So the wood is used because it's resilient and pliable and it can move like a ship does when it crosses the Atlantic. And sometime in the 1600s, after an earthquake damaged the original, a bishop said, no, we're not using the plans that were sent from the crown of Spain. We're going to Santiago Harbor and we're getting those carpenters that build the boats to build this cathedral. So what's interesting is the what you would think is the weaker material forms the skeleton, which is wood, because of its ability to shift in the wind and shift with the shaking grounds. And the infill is stone. So these enormous timbers are so monumental that it could hand up, hold up a stone panel, a stone section of wall. And they're absolutely formidable. And there are 12 of them that mark the growth rings of the city. So in terms of landscape and settings, these 12 churches that span the history of Santiago from 1519 to, you know, relatively recently, they also are the growth rings of the city and they're there and they are being worked on, but they also need help. Yes. And I know that you produce a series of extraordinary drawings of uh, the Church of Santa Lucia with the students from the University of Miami School of Architecture. And for all of you that are listening, um, this international audience, I would ask you to look up these churches, these wooden churches in Santiago de Cuba. They are truly extraordinary and probably the largest wooden constructions in the Caribbean. But I can't come to an end of this interview without talking a bit about your practice. We have probably about five minutes or so, and I also have to get to that last question. But most recently, um, your practice has been commissioned to do a series of important ecclesiastical buildings in Miami. But your practice has engaged really in a diversity of projects at multiple scales. So in a, just two or three minutes, could you tell us a bit about the work of your office, George? Well, thank you. My The work of my office has changed as my understanding of preservation and history and the link between the creative process and this project of stewardship um, has grown. Um, so I will now talk about work that is creative work, not work, look, stewardship is also creative. And the, this came from an image I saw, the, the realization of this, which I call making and keeping, the responsibility of making and keeping, came from an image I saw of Georgia O'Keeffe, who's a favorite of mine since I was in art school, um, standing 
99, she lived to 99 years of age, the great American painter, standing in her studio and in the ranch in New Mexico and touching one of these late works, which were like earthen pots that didn't look like pots. They looked like beehives or they looked like ancient weathered stone. And she was more weathered than anything at that time. But And it just occurred to me that the pot probably came, or the sculpture more than a pot, came from the wheel and she put it on the wheel. So it was freshly made. And the minute she set it on the table, it stopped being a wheel and it started being something she could empathize with. All of a sudden there was a distance and she touches it and it feels like a caress. So I realized, wait a minute, buildings are like that. We make them and someone else takes care of them, right? Not the ones who make them. But then we have to take care of the ones that were made before us. And that's when the two parts of the office fused in a way between a very thin line or a diaphragm. So those buildings include, for example, the houses, which I love because I love domesticity, and the Brickle Bridge, which is a bridge in downtown Miami that I won in a competition with Rafael Portomondo and Mike Sardinas. And that project is about placing on the bridge via a sculptural additions to the bridge, in other words, works of sculpture, um, the narrative of the founding of the city of Miami, because the bridge essentially is at the very founding spot. And the river, Miami River, marks its east-west line, and the two banks mark the north-south line. So it's a monument that includes Tequesta circles that are 2,000 years old and high-rise skyscrapers. The other one that I think is important to talk about is the colonial courthouse at William, no, the new courthouse at Williamsburg, which was about understanding architectural elements as footnotes in a contemporary composition, like the lanterns and the floating pediments of the colonial courthouse are somehow adjacent to the body of the building. George, I'm going to interrupt you. We've got two minutes. And I just want to say um, uh, your website, um, George Hernandez um, Architects, uh, I would encourage the listeners to look at your work. It's at a diversity of scales um, and an extraordinary um, collection of buildings. I'm only going to allow you to say what your favorite city is. Yeah, We're easy. not going to have enough time to say why. I'm going to so cheat. What's your favorite city, it's George? It's a pair. It's a couple. It's a pairing. Okay. Venice and Rome. Venice and Rome. George, Can't think of the world without one of them. That's why. George, thank you. Thank you for joining me today. And thank you for being such a wonderful teacher to generations of students, including myself. You do all that you do with joy and a generosity of spirit that is admirable. And your work has certainly contributed to the making of a better world. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week. 